Reading from Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I shall bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing the transactions in Israel. So the kingsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. 
Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So far God's word. Thank you, Lavina. Uh, good job with the names there. There's some um, unusual ones, probably not on any of our um, lists for potential children's names, but anyway, they're there. Well done. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through this passage. There's all sorts of things in here which sound kind of strange to us, different practices and ideas. We're going to try and explain those and shed some light on the good news that this passage is speaking to us. Now, I think it's pretty fair to say that this year we've learned a lot about ourselves, um, perhaps not the type of lesson we might have wanted uh, or the way we would have wanted to have learned those things, but, but, but it's been useful, hasn't it? Um, one of the things that I've learned, one of the things that I've learned uh, from myself and from talking to others as well, is just how much we depend on travel. Now, I'm not just talking about business or, or work, travel here. But, but we actually really rely on travel, don't we? We, we rely on travel for, for what it brings to us, uh, for the holidays we can look forward to, for the connection with family, for the time spent away and the, the high points of our year. We, 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 we love travel. It's, it's a huge part of our lives. And all of a sudden, it, it's largely taken away from us. Mostly, anyway. Um, you might have seen a few weeks ago, Qantas launched a new flight uh, you can jump on one of their brand new Dreamliners, you can leave from Sydney uh, and land back in Sydney. Uh, they'll take you for, for a couple of hours around some of the great sights of Australia, um, all for the experience of flying. You can have that great fun of checking in, you can have that great fun of sitting in an uncomfortable seat and eating subpar food at an above standard price, and at the cost of $1,800. For the experience. Isn't that amazing? What a bargain. Just to have that experience of travel again. If that's not you, uh, if you're really feeling like a risk, uh, cruise liners are going to launch a similar service. You know, there you go. That's your ultimate daredevil holiday now. Jump on a cruise ship, go from somewhere to back to somewhere. The, leave the port, return to the same port. You have experienced travelling. You have got that little taste of what you're missing. But, it, but it's working. That, that Qantas flight actually sold out in like 10 minutes. It was their fastest selling out flight ever because people are desperate for travel. We, we miss it so much. We just want it again. Uh, travel brings us joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. That's how much we want it. Well, what if I told you that flying around in circles won't make you feel fulfilled? <laughs> Duh, like obviously, <laughs> that's pretty clear cut. But what if I told you that, in fact, anything you do to try and feel fulfilled won't work? And what if I told you that what our story teaches today is that the only way to experience that fullness, the only way to have that full life, is to find it in God? They might think, well prove it. <laughs> okay, let's. Let's jump into this passage. Let's see it. 
because that's what it's telling us. It's telling us that there is full life, that it's found only in God, and that it is far better than anything else you will ever find. So let's jump in together. Now it turns out that the very first thing that we find is that the path to that fullness, the path of redemption, is one that comes at a great cost. Now if you were here last time we looked at the book of Ruth, you might remember the last chapter, chapter 3, ends on a hiccup. You know, we, we get this great meeting, this great proposal, as Jeff pointed out, of, of Ruth and Boaz, and it looks like everything's going to come together so beautifully. And then Boaz says, but, <laughs> but there's this other guy, and he's in my path. It can't just progress as smoothly as we wanted. And you remember what Naomi said at the end of the chapter, well, that Boaz, he's quite a guy. Remember, the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And so we find exactly that. Look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So while Ruth goes home, talks to Naomi, Boaz goes the other direction, goes to the town gate of Bethlehem, finds his place and sits down there. Now you've got to kind of picture this, um, think old uh, town, town wall, big gate, main way in and out of this, this village. And behind this gate is an open square, like the civic square of the town. And it's not just a place where people kind of move through to get somewhere else. The town square is where you go to do business. It's, it's kind of like the town hall of the day, an open air town hall. Uh, you do business, you make deals, kind of like a court. And so when Boaz goes there and sits down, he's not just, you know, having a rest, hoping someone might wander along. He's sitting down and everyone seeing him knows Boaz is going to do some business today. Boaz has plans, he's going to make a deal, something's going to happen. So people are probably keeping their eye on him. Boaz sits down. Lo and behold, just the man he wants happens to walk by. <laughs> you know, it's exactly like, you remember Ruth chapter 2? Uh, lo and behold, Ruth found herself in Boaz's field. It's the same words here. Lo and behold, just the bloke he wants happens to walk by first thing in the morning. Wonderful. You, come over here. <laughs> the, the Bible says, uh, our translation says, come over here, my friend. Actually, what it says is, Mr. So-and-so, literally, I, I don't, no kidding, Mr. So-and-so, get over here. <laughs> now, obviously, Boaz knew his name. You know, he's, they're probably cousins. Uh, he obviously called him by name. But the narrator doesn't care about his name. You know, it doesn't matter who this guy is. We don't need to remember him. He is just Mr. So-and-so in the way, about to be out of the way. Well, anyway, so the court is adjourned and Boaz makes his case. Look at verse 2 through 4. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So the situation is really straightforward. Boaz is essentially bringing a great business opportunity before Mr. So-and-so. 
Naomi, we know, a widow in need, is selling her land, or probably actually selling the right to her land. She has the right to work that land and earn an income of it, but as a widow, she can't. And so she can't earn anything, she can't earn a living, so selling it provides her some funds to survive. What an opportunity for Mr. So-and-so. No one else can buy this land. You know, he, he doesn't just have the first option. He's the only guy. And he doesn't have to buy it. He can just kind of redeem it and have it. I mean, it's great. Big block of land. He can afford to work it, add its income to his own. This is brilliant at no cost to himself. Of course, I'll redeem it. But then Boaz drops the other shoe. Verse 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. (laughs) Here's the catch. There's strings attached to this deal. Yes, great block of land, great opportunity to uh, improve your income, but a wife. Now, Mr. So-and-so has a wife already. Mr. So-and-so has plans already for his wife and for his children. Now, this is a fly in the ointment for him. First of all, he's going to have to provide for Naomi. That's, that's catch number one, but that's not a huge deal. Now he's going to have to provide for Ruth as well. And not just provide for Ruth, he's going to have to marry her. And he's going to have to father a son for her. Which means, once he's done that, the land becomes that son's. Not in his family, but in Ruth's family. So he redeems this land, he pays for the upkeep of Ruth and Naomi and their families, and then he loses the land. On top of that, he may even endanger his own family. If his son uh, dies, then all of his land reverts to Ruth's son. So he might lose everything. There's a huge risk involved here. And he's like, this is a bad deal all of a sudden. This doesn't make sense. And so he refuses. And Boaz takes up the opportunity, as he's been hoping all along. Look at verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. Boaz seals the deal, not with a signature, with a shoe, which is weird, but that's just how they did it back then. (laughs) I don't know if you did a lot of deals, maybe you had a really great shoe collection. Anyway... It's done. Now, don't think too harshly of Mr. So-and-so here. Yes, he could have acted kindly, but he hasn't actually made a wrong decision here. He's under no obligation. There's no law that said he had to redeem. Uh, It was an option that he had and nothing more. You know, in many ways, he's actually just made a really wise and rational decision. But Boaz, Boaz has made a kind decision. 
Boaz has shown incredible generosity, in fact. You know, he's taking on himself the plight of Ruth and Naomi, and at no small cost. You know, he's giving up his own name, essentially, for this. He's taking, really, her surname and giving up his own name for the sake of redeeming. He is willing to take that risk. He is willing to pay that price in order to redeem. And what we're being told, what we're being reminded here is there is no redemption. There is no path to fullness without cost. There is no redemption without a cost. Now you will say, well, duh. <laughs> like, we, we get that. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Nothing good comes for free. We, we'd like it if it was that way. Um, every so often I, I check my, my spam email just to make sure nothing important's fallen in there. And every time I check it, I'm amazed at how many people want to give me money. <laughs> it's, it's just phenomenal. There are so many Nigerian princes in the world and they just need places to deposit their millions. And it's like, it's great. But it's a scam. I mean, we know, it's a scam, isn't it? You know that it's a scam. Nothing that good comes free. In fact, nothing good comes for free, does it? Good things cost. And we understand that. We're happy to pay the price for things that we want, for, for things that we think will give us form. We'll, we'll give up time and we'll give up effort. We'll give up money for things that we think will bring us fullness. Uh, I, I read the other day the old fisherman's fear. <laughs> the fisherman's fear apparently is that when you die, uh, your wife will sell your fishing gear for what you told her you paid for it. <laughs> I've always been very honest. <laughs> when asked <laughs> but that's the thing it's the fear you know we'll pay things we'll be embarrassed about what we've paid for things because those things will bring us fullness because those things make us feel full we're happy to pay that cost but there is a cost and that's what we're being reminded here there is a path to fulfillment via redemption but it costs you cannot get there without a cost Naomi needed that. We, we saw that. The start of the story, back in chapter 1, tells us her life was empty. There was no future for Naomi. There was no hope for Naomi. There was no life for Naomi. And there was no way that she could change that. She's a widow. Not a chance of marrying. She's too old for that. Not a chance of having more children. She's too old for that too. Not a chance of working the land. She can't do that as a woman in that time. There is no hope for her. No chance of self-redemption. She needed someone else to redeem. And someone else did. Boaz did. But what about us? What about us in our need, in our emptiness? This is what the Bible says of us. The Bible says their appetites are never satisfied. Now, that's really the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, where that quote comes from. Never filled, always longing, always feeling emptiness. Why? Because we live as broken people in a broken world, searching for completeness that can't be found. That's the cost of being broken in a broken world, isn't it? We cannot find 
that completeness, that fullness and fulfilment that we long for. How could we ever find it in an imperfect world? It can't possibly exist. And that's the result, that's the consequence of our sin and our rejection of God. No more than Naomi could, we cannot redeem ourselves. So who will? Well, this is what 1 Peter chapter 1 says. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. I mean, <laughs> there's no amount of silver or gold that you could give in exchange for the life of a person for eternity. I mean, it's, it's completely ludicrous. The price is priceless. The precious blood of Jesus himself, God's only son. And that price has been paid. And there is the path, there is the only path to fulfilment. Via the redemption that Jesus made. See, that, that path exists and it costs immeasurably beyond any comprehension. And yet, it doesn't cost you. Because Jesus has paid it for you. And so it's offered to you as a gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. For it's offered in grace and it is received in faith. There is no redemption without cost, but that cost has been paid. Jesus has paid the price for you. And Jesus says, come after me. We're going back to the book of Mark in, uh, next week, in fact. Remember what Jesus says in Mark? Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, I've totally committed myself for you. Totally commit yourself to me. No half measures. It's all or nothing. Where well, we can't seek for the good but not be willing to pay the price and, and try and hedge our bets like Mr. So-and-so. When we accept the gift of life from Jesus, we accept what that life is. It is a full life. But it is Jesus' way of life. It is a life he calls us to. Look at the cross. See what he has done for you. Will you give any less to him? But the question then is, quite logically, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is that fulfillment, is that filling actually worth it <laughs> because the cost is high the cost is hard well we find out in the words of those who observe what Boaz does here look at the second half of verse 11 with me everyone said they're witnesses this is what they say next may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
Now, you need some background here. You kind of need to know the family tree uh, of this place. But what you need to know is this is an incredible thing to say to a Moabitess. Okay, uh, Moab, the country full of Moabites, not friends of Israel, enemies of Israel, really hated. There was, yeah, bad relations there. They were outsiders. But look at the blessings they give. Rachel and Leah, they are the mothers of the nation. Uh, They gave birth to the 12 uh, tribal leaders, the patriarchs of Israel. They were the ones who brought this nation into being. And now these people are saying to this Moabites, may you be like them. Maybe you be as integral to the life of this nation as they were. I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? Then they say, may you be like Tamar. May your your child be like Perez. Now, if you go back to Genesis uh, and read the story of Tamar and Perez, not a nice story. But what they're saying is, even though this is all odd, even though you're an outsider, may great things come from you. May God use your son to build this nation, to advance his people. See, what what this crowd is saying to, to Ruth and to Boaz is, may you be an enormous part of the future of our people. May you always have a place in our people. May you be integral to our people. May you be part of this family and part of this tribe from this day and forever. But not only that, look what they say to Boaz. They say to Boaz, may you have a name. Uh, May you have renown and be famous and remembered. I mean, the irony is fantastic, isn't it? Uh, Remember Mr. So-and-so? Mr. So-and-so didn't want to lose his name, so he backed out on the deal. We don't even know what that name was. We just know him as Mr. So-and-so. He's completely forgotten. But Boaz... Boaz, who risked his name and risked the family line, we remember him. His name's preserved forever. And their future child is blessed. May this child be the start of something special. May they do great things. May they be used by God incredibly. So what's what's the promise? What's the blessing that's being offered? They're saying, may God give you a place a future, renown, belonging. They are saying, may God give you everything that you have lacked. And God does. Now we skip nine months very quickly here, but find out that God has acted. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful scene, isn't it? Now, do you remember chapter 1? Naomi has, has left Israel there full with a husband, with two sons and a bright future. She returned empty without any of those things and without hope. Remember what she said. Remember what she said to the women of the town. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
The women never replied back then. (laughs) But now they do. And look what they say. Praise be to the Lord. He has not left you without. He has not left you empty. And isn't it so? She was empty. But now literally her lap is full. Her lap is full of her, her grandson. An heir for her line of future. She was empty, but she, now she is full. She had no hope of life. Now she has a life in her hands. She had no place. Now she has security. She had no future. Now she has a family continue to, her, to continue her line. See, everything, everything she lacked has been met in God. God, God has redeemed her. Through Boaz, all her emptiness has been met. All her despair has been filled. Her fortunes have been utterly reversed. And she has hope now. See, what's it saying? It's saying, is God's redemption good? Is God's redemption worth it? Absolutely. It is more than worth it. It is exactly what we need. Uh, I don't know if you keep up with um, Targa, but you might remember a few years back, well, actually 10 years ago now, roughly, um, Eric Banner entered Targa. You know, Eric Banner, a great actor, well, Australian actor. Uh, yeah, there was a whole documentary about it. He, Eric Banner found his very first car, the first car that he owned. Um, it's a 1974 XB Falcon Coupe. Awesome car. He found it, he restored it and he restored it beautifully like he lavished his attention on this car and he restored it to better than brand new uh, the film explores that and shows all the time he and, and money he lavished on it but it also explores uh, you know the idea of obsession with cars and that love for cars that people have and the emotional attachments and y- you saw that in Banner like this this was more than a car for him he was so attached to it it, it, it was his passion it was his dream and the film culminated with him entering this beautiful car. Uh, I saw it in person. It's a, it was a beautiful car. He, he entered it in Targa. And he finally got to open it up and really drive it. And he went through the first stage and promptly wrapped it around a tree. And he utterly destroyed this car. It was a complete write-off. Nothing to be taken back from it. And that's really the story, that's ultimately the story of all the things that we try to find fulfilment in, in this life. They will go. For a time they'll fill our lives, for a time they'll bring us joy, for a time they'll hint at fulfilment, and then they'll go. They will be taken, they will leave, they will disappear. And that is why God's filling is the best. Because God's feeling can't be lost and never will be lost. And you, you see that in Naomi. See, God doesn't come to Naomi's life and just, you know, she doesn't just discover a pot of gold in that field that she owns. It, it, it doesn't happen like that. She doesn't get lavished material blessings upon her. Because all of those things could be lost. Yes, they would make her happy for a time. But ultimately, then they're nothing because they disappear. But what God gives her is far better. God redeems her to a place, to a place in a family, to a place, a physical place. God redeems her to a future and to a hope and to to life that will come from her. He redeems her to things that can never be taken away. And that is the fullness that God gives. All of that 
is offered to us as well through our greater Redeemer. Do you, do you remember what that greater Redeemer said? He said it there in John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He has come to bring life to the full, complete life, full life, life in, in all its riches, life forever for us. A life that can't be taken, a life that can't be lost, a life that continues. Now, how do we know that Jesus can do that? Well, we know because Jesus doesn't come and take. Jesus doesn't come and ask of us until we, he gets enough to give that back. No, Jesus comes and he gives. Even to the point of giving his own life for us to live. He gives. This is what Ephesians 1 says. Praise be to God who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Or uh, Ephesians chapter 2. That he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, God has lavished on us everything that we need. The fullest of lives is ours in Jesus. A place and a future and a hope, life itself forever, given freely in him. Sometimes I wonder why we, why we spend money on our kids. Now, don't get me wrong. I know why we spend money on our kids, but, but sometimes I, I, I have to question it. You know, you get to a birthday, uh, you, you choose all these presents, you give all these presents, and then they obsess over the, the cheapest one. Like, that was an afterthought. What? Or they obsess over the packaging. And you think, I just give up. You know, you, you take your kids somewhere special. You take them somewhere expensive and they don't look at the attraction. They find a special water fountain. Or they, they find an ant's nest. And just poke that. You're like, got ant's nests at home. You know, why do we do this? But what happens? Well, kids learn, don't they? <laughs> kids learn as they grow up. And they, they learn the value of things that they've been given. They, they learn what really matters and what really counts. They learn what things are really special. And so you and I ought to as well. As we grow up in Jesus, as we learn Jesus, we begin to learn more and more where the things of real value are, where the things that fill and really fulfill are. We learn that they're not in this world. We learn that they're not in any experience to be found. We learn that they're not in any person. We learn that they're only in Jesus. Nothing else will bring you fulfillment or joy or satisfaction or peace or happiness in any way that truly lasts. Nothing else can give you true security or permanence or place or life. Only Jesus and Jesus gives it for free to you. Stop searching because you can't find it. Because he gives it. So find him. Now it kind of feels like that ought to be the full stop on Ruth, doesn't it? It kind of feels like that should be the end of the book and we go no further because we've reached the crescendo and, and, and that's it. But it's not. It's not, is it? <laughs> it used to really bug me. I used to think that Ruth 4 ended in the most dud of ways. You know, you read this great story and it's, it's, it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's so well told. And then it's got this like genealogy tacked on the end, which is hard to read, boring and full of weird names. Like, why? Why ruin such a great story? 
Well, like I said, that's what I used to think. Now I think it's perfect. Uh, and let me show you why. I'm going I'm to read the genealogy uh, from verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. See, all this time we have been immersed in this story. And that's a, that's a really good thing. But it's a very provincial story, isn't it? Like, we've been in Bethlehem, not, not the most important of towns. In fact, we've only really been in a few fields in Bethlehem and a, and a house and a, and a threshing floor. It's, it's so provincial. But all of a sudden now, right at the end of this story, we, we step back for a moment. And the horizon gets broadened out for us. When I was in school in grade four, uh, the project that we were given for the year was to make uh, little tapestries. Um, we each got given you know, a wooden frame filled with the, I don't know what the strings are called that you weave in and out of, but anyway, that's, that's what we had. And we, we had thread or we had wool and we could choose a design, we could choose all the different colors of material that we wanted and we would weave uh, those patterns. You know, We'd had time during class when the teacher was reading a book, we would do that all year. We, we would make these tapestries. Now, when you're working on your tapestry, you, you, you're doing it from the back, and it looks awful. Like, it probably looked pretty awful at the end, to be honest, as well, but, but it looks really bad when you're working on it. it there's, there's knots, and there's loose threads, and it, it's, it's just a mess. It looks really bad. I mean, sure, there's, there's nice colours poking through, and, you know, if you look really carefully, you can kind of get a, a hint that there's a pattern at least there, but, it, but it's rough. And it's only at that moment when you flip it over that you see exactly what's going on. You see the picture and the order and the design and the, the, the beauty of it emerges. And that's why Ruth ends like this. That's what the narrator does in this genealogy. He turns this story upside down and he, he reveals to us the tapestry. All, all, all the mess, all that chaos that we've been seeing is, is hidden and the beauty of this picture is revealed. And it is beautiful. It is stunning, in fact. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of mess, hasn't there? Just think of what's happened through this story. We've, we've had deaths, we've had widowing, we've had loss and fear and poverty and uncertainty and anxiety, and yet here we get a glimpse at what God's doing. You know, from, from a human point of view, this book is a dog's breakfast. It, it's, it's just so messy. And yet look what happens. Who is Obed's grandson? It is none other than David, and not just any David. It is King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, this godly warrior and leader, the man that God said is a man after my own heart. He comes from this. You know, if, if you're an Israelite, this is incredible. L look what God has done in this most ordinary of story, in this most messy of situations. Yeah, I mean, it's truly incredible. But if you're a Christian, this is even better. Because this genealogy reappears word for word later in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1. And it doesn't end there in David. David's line is recorded one after another for 20 more generations. And it ends 
in Jesus, the Christ, the greater, the greatest redeemer. Yes, God is redeeming Naomi. Yes, he is bringing her to the fullness that he intends for all of his people. But in doing so, he is also establishing the line not only of the great kings, but the line of the greater redeemer, of Jesus, our redeemer, our saviour, our life giver. Never forget, never forget, God is at work. See, that's the promise here to you and me, isn't it? God is at work. Life feels like chaos. All sorts of hurts, all sorts of losses and fears and anxieties we encounter. Yet God is at work. Yes, your life might not feel very full at the moment, at least materially. But if you trust in Jesus, it is full. And it couldn't be fuller. Because God's been at work. And his greatest redeemer has redeemed you to his eternal fullness. See, right now, right now we live in the underside of that tapestry. <laughs> right now we, we live in that mess. Yes, sometimes we catch glimpses of the pattern that God's weaving. Sometimes we get snapshots of the beautiful colours he's weaving into it. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just see mess. Sometimes we, we think we see what's emerging and then, then God runs right through it and it turns out to be something else entirely. Sometimes we see threads of just pain and heartache and sorrow and we, we think, why? They don't seem to fit. They don't, they don't seem to make sense. And it looks ugly. But one day this tapestry is going to be flipped over and not just us, but everyone will see it. Everyone will see exactly what God has been doing and it will be glorious. It will be marvelous. We will see it and we will praise God because we will see no mistakes, no accidents, no unfortunate incidents. Instead, everything woven together perfectly and wonderfully and gloriously. God's beautiful plan to redeem a people for himself through Jesus, his son, to enjoy him in perfection forever. That is what he is weaving. That's his plan. And we will see it one day. Even how your hurts and your fears and your anxieties are part of his better and greater and perfect plan. And on that day, we, and in fact everyone, will fall down and praise how good you are, God. This is the chorus from Revelation that we read. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen.